So today we are talking with none other than Daniele Bellelli. Daniele is an author, a university professor, a martial artist, and of course, a podcaster. His first one was published when he was only 22 years old. And when it comes to teaching, he's quite the Renaissance man. Just a few subjects he's been lecturing on include American Indian history and philosophy, world religions, the history of ancient Rome, one of my favorites, and the history and philosophy of martial arts. The list goes on and on. His career in martial arts is just as broad, from a seventh-degree black belt in kung fu to submission wrestling, jiu-jitsu, boxing, all the way up to MMA fighting. Daniele is the host of the History on Fire podcast and the Drunken Taoist podcast, two shows that we absolutely love, especially as history podcasts. It's such a masterpiece that really brings those historical stories back to life. And that is why Daniele was on top of our list for this month on storytelling. Johnny, I know you're super excited this week. It's really difficult to do this show when we have guests on that we've had intimate experience with their voice. And I've been listening to Daniele Bellelli's podcast, History on Fire, for quite a long time now. And some of those episodes are ridiculously well-researched, and we get to really pick apart storytelling with an expert storyteller today. And of course, it's something that our audience shares with us listening to our voice. It's fun to have it on the other end where we're looking up to our guests, having known them so well. This is the Art of Charm podcast, the show where we bring you actual tips and strategies on how to better connect socially, boost your emotional intelligence, and of course, this month, tell better stories to crush it in business, love, and life. Now imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum that we deliver here for free each and every week. I'm AJ. And I'm Johnny. Now, not only have we been doing the show with great tips, scientifically proven strategies to help you socially with amazing guests, we also deliver online and live advanced emotional intelligence training programs for over a decade. If what you've learned on this show has helped you in your life, imagine what one of our tailored programs can do for you. To learn more about these advanced social skills programs, go to theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp for more details and sign up for our newsletter. Also, we are now doing corporate training. So if you're interested in having our team, including myself and AJ, come to your office to work on team building, conflict resolution, and networking, send us an email at aj at theartofcharm.com. A happy office is a productive office. Take your life and career to the next level now with The Art of Charm Coaching. Now, before we start, we'd also like to take an opportunity to reach out to our audience members who work in the psychology fields, either as a psychologist or a therapist. We have some really cool projects that we're working on, and we'd love your input. You can also email me at aj at theartofcharm.com for more information about that. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Let's start the show. Welcome to the show. I've been hearing your voice for such a long time. It's finally great to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Obviously, we're going to dig into your podcast and storytelling this month. Being storytelling, really, history is the ultimate storytelling. Right. That's exactly what it is. And we were laughing before the show. A lot of us, when we encounter history, it's in a boring classroom setting. Mm -hmm. And the narratives that get shared typically involve memorizing lots of dates. Mm -hmm. But... There's a lot more richness to history, and that's really why Johnny and I enjoy your show and digging more into the actual stories behind history. And, and what grew your fascination with history? I think to me, is, I grew up as an only kid. 
before internet. So you have a lot of ways to get bored, right? So to me, being in my brain, making up stories was what I started doing. I don't know, when I was three, four, five. It's just like, you know, there's only so much time that your parents can spend playing with you. So to me, it was like, okay, time to turn on imagination. And, and so history was awesome because it would give me material to work with. I would have uh, something gathered and what I see outside the window every day in a modern society where I lived. I had access to all these other ways in which people have lived, dressed, looked like, uh, thought, did all this other stuff. And I was like, this is awesome. It, it gives me so much more material to play with. So really was, for me, history was about storytelling from day one. And that was Milan, Italy? Yeah. You know, for all of us, when we go to Europe, we're exposed to so much history. Sure. It's, it's quite overwhelming. And I was telling AJ today that your show and, and, and some others like yours had given me the opportunity to learn about stories in certain cities because when you're exposed to a museum or you go to a city, you're exposed to thousands of years of history, but you have no context and it's right. all hitting you in the face at one time. But if you can narrow down mm-hmm. and follow one narrative through, you can learn so much about that city. And then it's connections to other eras and other times. Totally. You know, the funny thing, though, is that even though Italy is obviously there's everywhere you turn, there's something that's 2000 years old or something. I really didn't care about Italian history growing up there, yeah. probably because I was a snobby little shit. So I'm like, oh, because it's all around me everywhere. Pff, who cares? I'm interested about stuff happening across the globe, not this stuff. Now I dig it. You know, now I can appreciate it because when it is not, I don't take it for granted the same way. So now when I go back, I'm like, man, this is amazing. You know, but when I was growing up around it, I was like, yeah, don't care about this part. Give me the other stuff. Give me anything but European history. And was there a a story or a period of history that really hooked your imagination at the start? You know, one thing that I, I mean, I think there's something fascinating in pretty much any time period, but the things that I tend to gravitate the most toward tend to be tribal stories. People living as small tribes, whether you are talking about, you know, prehistory kind of stuff or whether you are talking about 150, 200 years ago, American Indians on the Great Plains, that kind of tribal life where your whole society is made up of like at most a few hundred, maybe a thousand, two thousand people. So it's all a face-to-face community. You know everybody. Everybody's part of there's no state above it. They're just you, your tribe, the land, other tribes you have to interact with. There's something about it, probably because that's the way as human beings we have lived for the longest period we've been around, that fascinate me, that kind of speak to me on a level that's like, this is who we are at the core. This is how what made our DNA for 99% of the time we've been around, you know? So I find that really intriguing. Of course, that's the hardest one because there's usually very little, there's pretty much nothing written. So in terms of sources to reconstruct, it's not the easiest thing. One of the things I enjoy about the show is when you run into those places, you give as much context and facts as you can, and then you give a few different narratives to allow your audience to choose from, sure. from, from the sources that you've read, which is great because right. I think we all understand the, the media that we're living to, in today is we've caught it being so slanted so many times that it's difficult to sure. trust. And I wish... I certainly would wish the media would play that role as well. Like, listen, here's what we know. And this is, it's, this is up to you, but it's force fed. Yeah. And when you're hearing such history presented that way, it's qu- quite refreshing. 
almost as if you have a bit of a hand in how you're perceiving it and, and what it means to you as well. Yeah, because ultimately anything as a bias. I mean, there are two levels of bias. There's the dishonest bias, which is like, I want to kind of shove my point of view down your throat. So I'm going to tweak all the evidence to make you believe what I believe. That's messed up. We get it. That's dishonest. But there's another level that's completely unavoidable. You know, whereas the first one is avoidable, the second mm-hmm. one isn't, which is just by virtue of who you are, like the storyteller or the journalist, the person framing the story there are going to be topics they are more into than others. So you're going to shine the spotlight on those topics more than others. Even if you're trying to be as objective as humanly possible, you can't. You know, you can be as objective as you possibly can. That doesn't really mean you are truly objective. And so it's good to be honest about it. It's like, look, this is the stuff I'm into. This is what I find. This is why I come to this conclusion. You do what you want with it. You know, it's like you see the path, you can either follow that or you can take those elements and take it in another direction. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. And obviously in your research, when we're talking about tribes and communities where spoken history is really what we're talking about here, there's not even, I would argue, you know, the historians that we have today who've, you know, been steeped in the research, but these are just stories that the community shares about events that are happening to them. How do you tease out the disinformation and the spin that's going on in these narratives? It's hard. It's really hard because, I mean, it's like even in something happened hundred yards from here, there was going to be 10 witnesses who are going to tell you 10 different stories. And they are all right there. And it's happening right here, right now, let alone when you add time for stories to change. The person who wasn't really there, but heard it from his cousin, second remove, who told him that maybe. So, you know, the room for mistakes is huge. And I think that's understood with all history that there's the legend and there's the history. The legends we know. We usually know a few of variation of it. The actual history we can tease out and make educated guesses about. It's about as good as it gets. And in your fact-finding missions to build out these narratives on the podcast, obviously there's a lot of time spent. Mm-hmm. And we understand that 
as Johnny was laughing about earlier, to the victors go the spoils, mm-hmm. right? And we've even seen now some of our historical figures that we grew up looking up to, stories have come out about sure. their checkered past and, and maybe the history that we were taught in schools isn't truly the way it happened. How do you tackle those issues when you encounter them and building out the narrative? Well, and that's what I always found weird because what you're referring to is often colored by nationalism. How in every country, everyone wants to make their founding father or their whatever the hell the good guys, right? The whole story is we are the good guys and by default, that means the other guys are the bad guys. But, you know, there's this, and to me, I don't get it because it's like, why? You know, nobody's going to accuse you today of being responsible for what somebody has done five generations ago. So you can be honest about it. You know, if it looks like the, that record is kind of shady, how about we call it for what it is? So that that mechanism of like, I have to defend somebody who had lived uh, generations ago against the evidence makes no sense to me. To me, it's like, I'm all for nuance. You know, I'm not saying, you know, you need to just point the finger from where you sit today saying what they should have done 200 years ago and they are all terrible people because... But at the same time, you know, also call it for what it is. You know, there are certain lines that you don't cross. And when somebody does cross them, I don't care the time period or when, there are not too many ways to spin around, uh, you know, enslaving babies. That's bad in all times, <laughs> in all situations, you know. It's right. like, that just, that's it. So I always find that, and also that topic, the you shouldn't judge the past by today's standards, is always funny because it tends to be brought up when somebody's judging the people you like. No, when people are judging the people you don't, then it's totally fine when they are judging the people you don't like. Right. But the enemies are fine. Sure. The heroes, let's But not suddenly question. it's like, no way, it was a different time. You should understand. And I did actually, there was a series that um, I did with Daryl Cooper from Martyr Made Podcast where we kind of covered this um, one story from the 1860s, which was this massacre of the Cheyenne at Sun Creek. And then Daryl covered My Lai Massacre in Vietnam. And it was funny because I remember on my public page on Facebook, we were talking about historical massacres and things like that. And as long as we were talking about Nazis or communists, they were like, can you believe those terrible, horrible people? And then suddenly it's Mila is like, well, you understand, to understand, they were under a lot of pressure. And it's easy to, I'm like, where was this, all this human understanding when it was the other guys? You know, it's like the same rule should apply. Yeah. And unfortunately, when we look back at all of our histories, there's going to be some light moments and there's going to oh, be yeah. some dark moments, especially mm-hmm. when war is involved. With the, all these new formats, with the technology we have to be able to tell these stories over 11 hours, do you really get an opportunity, at least for you and Daryl and, and, and Dan, to humanize some of these characters to such a level that for the first time of hearing this, maybe this story you've heard in history class and, and all through your life, but the, the new context that you have where you are now looking at this and this character as he's just like me, but he was in this situation. And now you're, you're completely sucked in because dates are just that they're logistical. But when you put it in context of a story, now your emotions are engaged. And the more you can humanize these characters, the more engaged and emotions are flying. And when I'm trying to turn people onto some of this stuff and they're like, how, how long is this? Oh, this, this podcast is only 11 hours. Don't worry about it. They're like, what? I don't right. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, however, uh, we were just talking about Daryl Cooper. It's like the minute that is laid out, you're instantly hooked. You want to go through the whole experience. Yep. 
When did you realize that podcast was a medium that you wanted to participate in and start sharing these stories? Well, I had a really weird intro to podcasting because um, I think my first podcasting experience was in 2011. And he was in the deepest end of the pool you can possibly end up because I think he was the very first I ended up in was Joe Rogan podcast. And I didn't know what podcasting was, right? And back then and still today, Rogan's podcast was humongous. Uh, I mean, today even more so than back then. Yeah. And so I, I remember walking in the studio and there was uh, Brian Redman and I'm like, Joe hasn't come in yet. And Brian was there and I'm like, podcasting? Kind of like, what are we doing here? And he was like, <laughs> it's like radio, but you can cast. And I was like, okay, good. I got it. We're, we're good with that. And so it's like, suddenly after being on Joe's show, I realized just how many people were listening. And I'm like, damn, that's a whole medium that I was ignoring that I didn't know about. And now I'm realizing what a big impact it has on so many people. So then I started becoming kind of a guest on a bunch of podcasts. And then lots of people were like, hey, you should start your own thing. And so I'm like, I guess, sure, you know. And initially I started more uh, Joe's type of show, you know, more guests and chats and interviews. But then that's when I started putting two and two together. And I'm like, okay, I teach history for a living. I am podcasting. My Probably my favorite podcast is Dance Hardcore History. Doesn't take a genius. Maybe I should do the same, you know, right. different from Dan, but with my own spin, but get into it. And there was plenty of room with each of one of his episodes taking 10 months. Right. Like, <laughs> suddenly be having these two episodes a year, right? And so I was like, but even that was funny because from the moment I decided to start it to when I actually released the first episode, probably a year and a half went by. Because what I was thinking is I don't want to do you know, I do all the research and then I release one or two episodes and then, okay, see you guys in eight months. You know, it's like, I want to have enough lined up that I can mm-hmm. then buy myself some time to do the research for episode nine or something, right? I, I guess I still, despite knowing how history works, I kind of underestimated the amount of work that goes into it, which is insane. It's like every time I get through a series of like, Never again. This is painful. I Because you, you need to become an instant expert on something. Mm-hmm. And you don't become an instant expert. So you need to go to at least like 10, 400-page uh, book and read the same story a zillion times before you start seeing it from all these different angles. And then you really know your story. And Obviously, you saw this as an extension of, of teaching just sure. to reach more people. Yeah, And we certainly know that you put a lot of work into building out these stories, how much comparatively goes from the work of the story itself, but also character development sure. so that the, the audience can connect? Yeah, all in all, I'd say an average hour and a half, two hour episode takes probably about somewhere between 100 and 200 hours of work behind it. So it's a lot because, you know, first you need to read all the books. And you take all the notes on the books. Then you come up with sort of the the bare bones of the story. And as you read more books, you add elements to this bare bone outline of the whole thing. Once you have the whole outline, okay, now you have a lot of information, but it's tedious as hell. So you need to now spice it up. So you need to, you know, connections, things that as you read come to mind, references to pop culture, joke that comes in, or characters, how you want to flesh them out, how you, why should anybody care, which is ultimately the key question on any storytelling, right? It's like when you're telling a story, I see it a lot in school when people teach. People walk in with the assumption that somehow people owe them attention. I'm like, nobody owe you, Jack. You know, it's like nobody, it's your job to hook people in. 
to hook people in who shouldn't, you shouldn't assume that they care even a tiny bit about the topic. Okay. It's your job to make the story interesting enough and ultimately human enough, you know, something that anybody who has a heartbeat can relate to that they are going to have some angle by which they are intrigued because you ultimately are talking about human emotions and things that, you know, the same way as if you put on a Hollywood production is designed to appeal to a ton of people through just basic human stuff that most humans can relate to. Same thing goes if you teach a class, the same thing goes into a podcast, same thing goes into anything really. And Talk about that hook for us when you're developing out, and maybe you can give us an example of a recent episode for you, how you come upon the hook and how you set up the story so that the audience is engaged. Sure. So for example, earlier we were talking about kind of complex historical figures and relating to and connected to what you're asking about the hook. Like at one point I did this series on Theodore Roosevelt, and I knew a few things about Roosevelt before and I have to go like, oh, he's a crazy bastard. It sounds like a cool <laughs> story, but you know, not that deep. And so I started reading and reading and reading. And on some level, it was interesting because there's the aspect that turns you off. You know, when you read it today, he clearly grew up at a time that was insanely racist. So some of that definitely comes up, particularly in his earlier writings. He got better over time, which is something that helps in liking. <laughs> right. But he starts from a place that was, that was everything he breathed around him was the culture was super racist. He never saw a war he didn't like. You know, he was a hardcore warmonger. So he's not my ideal guy in terms of foreign policy. Or <laughs> He had those issues that you look at it and you're like, that's a little problematic. But at the same time, there's so much to him as a, as a human being that you can, you know, there's a lot of his story that just, you know, like when he's, uh, when he's very young and he's um, severely asthmatic at a time when people hadn't figured out the, the proper treatment for asthma. So their idea actually, when you were a kid and you had asthma, they would give you cigars to smoke because the idea was that it would strengthen your lungs. And you, so, you know, it's a miracle that anybody survived. <laughs> but, you know, he was facing that kind of stuff, always being sort of this weak, nerdish guy in his books because he was always having, struggling with a body that wasn't serving him well. And somehow through luck, through working out, through things, he built for himself a much stronger, healthier body so much that he kind of builds a cult about this idea of uh, physical effort. That's one of his big things. When he's really young, like he's still in his early 20s, uh, he got married and his wife who just gave birth to a baby daughter dies the same day as his mom dies. So he comes home and he's like, that mother, that wife, here is a two-day-old kid to take care of. So, you know, there are these things that you could not care less about US foreign policy or politics or anything. You cannot, but you Stories like these are something that anybody can at least, if not relate through personal experience, at least imagine, you know what I mean? And be like, damn, if I was in that situation, how would I react to something that strikes such powerful emotional chords? And so that right there is your hook, right? That right there is like, okay, now I'm invested in this person. I want to see how they handle it, you know? So understanding the struggle that they've gone through, obviously we have these historical figures that we all revere and look up mm -hmm. to because of the stories that we've heard over and over again. But there's always that turmoil going on, no yep. matter who the hero is. And really hooking into that is how you get that audience engaged. Yeah, one thing I notice is that most of the characters I'm interested in, and I tend to, 
I like all of the stories I cover, but I tend to dig extra the biographical ones where there's a clear lead that you follow through their journey. But most of them are mildly mentally deranged. <laughs> they all have serious <laughs> issues. I find them lovable for the most part, but they are not the most always well-adjusted human being ever, you know? So it's... Uh, I mean, like, I think the first biography I did was Crazy Horse. And it's basically the Native American version of The Punisher, right? It's, it's exactly The Punisher story, just with... Uh, and, you know, you just see, you picture what it must have been like to go through all those experiences, mountains of heartbreak and tragedy. And you're like, okay, I can see how the guy would have some issues. You know, you, you still like him because there's a very sympathetic side to him. But at the same time, you... Yeah, there's yeah. some real stuff going on there. There's a lot of evil yeah. <laughs> woven into that story. Yeah. When you put your magnifying glass to these moments in history and you're building out that outline like you discussed, how do you pick that time frame and come up with the the introduction to the story, the hook, what you're going to focus on, and then also sort of the payoff at the end? Because sure. it's really your job as the storyteller to pick, okay, day one, day zero, and okay, this is the end of my story. And some of these struggles, I mean, they're still going on sure. to talk about tribal issues. Sure. Yeah, some of those things are... To me, in some way, that becomes the most interesting part because, yeah, you're framing the narrative. You know, you have all the facts, but you're giving it an arc. And the arc is not obvious. And the arc is something you have to figure out. And so what is that would interest somebody right away in the first five, ten minutes? And how you want to close it. Like right now, I'm working on this super long series that ends with something really dark where there's this... I don't know why today is just, it comes up this way. It's like massacre number 3073. <laughs> it's like, I swear, it's not all like that. But, you know, like it ends with the Wounded Knee Massacre. And at one point I caught myself, I'm like, do I really want to send my listeners off after they have listened for hours and hours and hours where the last image they have is like some... <laughs> baby dying in the snow after breastfeeding and choking on the blood of his dead mother. Is that really where I want to go with this? It's like, come on, man. It's like, you don't want to put a ribbon around it and make it sound like, oh, but it's all a happy... It's not. It's a terrible story. But okay, how do I frame it? Because no, I'm not going to do that to people. That's just <laughs> a bad way to end stuff. And so then I shifted the focus to, okay, that does happen in 1890 and it's horrible and it's terrible. But in that same story, there's also a story of survival against overwhelming odds. There's still a story of how Lakota culture that I've been looking at leading up to when the knee getting squashed in just about every way, legally, in terms of religious persecution, in terms of the massacre. It's like it looks still somewhat thriving today, still finding a way. And so you're not negating everything you have built up until that point, but you give it a spin that doesn't going to, you know, it's not going to have your listener going to shoot themselves after they are done. It's like, that was a great podcast. Right. Now I'm just going to go kill myself. It's like, <laughs> that's not the goal. So obviously there's the hook, that that moment that all of us as listeners humanizes whoever the main protagonist or character mm -hmm. in the uh, story is. And then from there, you got to zoom out and give context, mm -hmm. right? Why does this matter? And what's going on historically to put it in its place? And then you have, Conflict. Yep. And a lot of we'll go into here in a bit involves a lot of dark conflict yep. and massacres. But you are looking for something at the end 
to conclude in a way that the audience feels they've got some value out of yeah. it and they can take a positive <laughs> exactly. spin yeah. on it. Yeah, because ultimately, yeah, you don't want to be, you know, you want to be real. And a lot of history is nasty and it feels like Game of Thrones, right? It feels heavy as hell, nasty things happen. But if that's your conclusion, then it's like, what's the point? <laughs> Just sure, why right. even get up in the morning if that's how you're going to feel about everything, right? So it's like you look at all the darkness, but you also want to find whatever angle that also allow you to either deal with it or thrive despite all of it. And I mean, at some point, I remember talking with Dan Carlin, we were like, why most of the stories we tell are just terrible? Why is it always warfare and bloodshed <laughs> and this and that? And, you know, the point he was making is because those are some of the most extreme stories in human experience. And, you know, the more powerful the emotions that you put on the table are, the more invested you get into how the characters navigate those situations. And I get that, but there was a moment there where I was like, okay, but I also want to do something different. And so at one point, one of the podcasts that I was, uh, one of the series I was super happy with, I did these two episodes on the life of this one Zen monk from the 1400s, E.Q. Sojun, who's my all-time idol, because his main priorities were Zen, sure, that's great, but mainly also drinking and women. And it's all life. While there's plenty of obstacle and conflict and thing, the guy manages to be happy in spite of the context he's in. And, you know, the context, like most historical context, is going to be a tough one, you know. But you don't feel it in his attitude. You don't feel it in his writing. You don't feel it in the way he relates to things. And so I found it refreshing. The guy who is like, most of his stuff is about sex, happiness in the moment, and just the sense of a guy who has a tremendous zest for life. And I was like, ah, oh, man, that's refreshing once in a while to put the accent on that, not only on some terrible conflict taking place. Epic doesn't have to always mean bloodshed and gore. Epic can also be a happy story. You could say it's a character study. Yeah. Of a very complex character. And of course, it's going to relate to a lot of different people in a lot of different ways. One of the things that you mentioned of being extremes of the human experience, I can personally relate to some of, of how I now look at working out or how I go about my day directly as a response to some of the stories that I heard of, uh -huh. of this of human extreme of human experience. It's like, well, if that person could live through that, well, right. why am I freaking out <laughs> yes. right now? And in fact, I need to get it together. Right. And, you know, it's, and, and just, and to be exposed to that and, and, and care through, through the storytelling. Do you think that is a bit of the professor coming through where it's like, well, let's make sure everyone learns something at the end of this so it's just not a slasher flick? Yeah, because ultimately it's like, why are we doing it otherwise? To me, anything, storytelling included, needs to be about elevating the quality of life. If it doesn't do that, then we're wasting our time, you know? And maybe we're wasting our time in a fun way, you know, in a haha -ha entertaining way. Sure, not everything needs to be about elevation of quality of life, but kind of, you know? To me, it's like, that's the point, is we all want to live happier, more fulfilling lives. So storytelling to me is awesome because of what you're saying. It provides archetypes. It provides kind of role models that they don't have to be perfect, even because if they are perfect, you can relate. No. It's like, that's great for you, but has nothing to do with <laughs> where I'm at today. They need to be somebody that you can relate to 
who managed to do something amazing in spite of all the demons pulling you down, you know? And so that to me, yeah, I have the same exact thing that you're describing. That moment where you're like, oh man, life is hard, this, that, and the other. And there's a story there that reminds you, yes, but there's a way out. Yes, but there's a way to rise above it. And I love hero stories. That's to me is like, that's what you need in any stories, powerful characters that make you feel good about being alive ultimately. Yeah, I think everyone's story is a story of survival. Yeah. And some of these stories that you choose are the ultimate situations of life and death for mm-hmm. these people. And of course, the hero is going to struggle with decisions, is going to struggle with negative outcomes, and then hopefully rise above it so there is a life lesson that can be passed on. When you're telling these stories that are involving you know, mass violence, massacres, death, a lot of darkness, how do you draw the line from when enough is enough for the audience of like, how deep do I want to go into the darkness? Right. And how do you find your way out of that so that the audience, again, can move on from just all the death and destruction? Yeah. I'm a big fan of that process. You know, acknowledge the darkness, look at it, see it in all its ugliness, and then try to move forward. I tend to find that in many cases, the more sort of motivational self-help tend to skip that step. They are, yeah, yeah, I was kind of dark, but you know, it's really, I mean, amazing. It's like, no, 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 too soon. You know, it's like, because it, to me, it feels fake. You know, to me, it feels like you're not being real. You're not being honest about what that feels like. And ultimately, you're also making it sound too easy. Like for somebody who's quoting it, it doesn't feel good to be told, no, no, really, it's a great, it's like, come on, man, have first empathize with what it means to be in that situation, then you can move forward. But if you don't go through the process, you're never going to move forward in a way that's real. You may in a way that's like fake self-talk, but not in a way that goes deep. So in answer to your question, I think it's very important to just be, to dive deep, to look at the darkness for all its ugliness, and then help people kind of come out from the other end. So they are not, it's like darkness, darkness, darkness. Okay, guys, see you next time. It's like, no, that's terrible. <laughs> you know, you right. don't want to do that. But, but to show a path out. Well, it's certainly a, a, um, a large theme in philosophy of losing yourself or reaching the darkness in order to find your way back and truly know who you are. <laughs> because how can you know who you are if you haven't, put yourself in that position or have have been there. And there's many different ways of going about that. But until you come back through, and I think Joe just posted something about that as well. And we see it in, and certainly in philosophy, uh, every tradition has that story. Um, And we, and we, and you guys have certainly shown it in, in your stories Mm -hmm. that you you tell. Yeah, it's, it's important because that's that's life, right? Life is conflict, life is loss, life is failure. But it's not all that life is or it doesn't have to be. And so it's like showing that path through the hard stuff, through the failure, through all of it. And again, not rushing it because when you rush it to mean you're missing the real ability to come out strong from the other side. You know, you don't just go, I'm weak, I'm going to lift weights for two days and now I'm strong. No, take your time. You know, (laughs) you need to process that. You need to really feel it so that when you come out, it's real. There's a real strength behind it. It's not something that can be 
the next time that reality really shows its ugly face, you realize that mm, you weren't quite as though everything is for the best kind of thing. And and so that's kind of how I approach it in all in all the stories. I have zero problem with dealing with the really hard stuff, but I also want to show an arc of, because otherwise, again, I can tell depressing stories all day long, but why? You know, why are we doing it to ourselves? That's right. not the point. And we talked about this in our Toolbox episode about essentially there are the details and the facts and the logical part, but really when we're telling a story, we're painting with the emotions mm-hmm. and getting people to resonate with the emotions because that's what's universal, right? I may not have been a warrior. I may not have grown sure. up in the 1800s, but the emotions and the conflict that those characters are feeling, well, yeah, I can relate to that. Yep. Are there tools or techniques that you've developed over time to paint those emotions more vividly? How do you go about sharing that side of the story? I think not everybody's wired the same way. So some people have an easier threshold to cross into. Like I remember as a kid, if I would watch a movie, it felt like I lived it. It felt like I was the character, right? And so then I would see other people watch the same movie with me and two minutes later are cracking jokes. I'm like, no, how are you not still in that space? You know, it's like, that was a powerful takes a while to digest it all. And, and so that's when I realized, okay, maybe I have a different mindset where my immersion into the story goes to a kind of another level, which is not good or bad. It's just more intense for whatever good or bad as it may be. And so to me, it's like, okay, how can I distill some of that for somebody who may not do the exact same process I go through? How can I create the hook faster? You know, and that's essentially, and so it goes back to the same emotions. If you happen to feel them more intensely, well, it's even easier to then be able to communicate them to somebody because you, you know, they feel the same thing. They may have just not dwelled on it as much. Right. So in your preparation, you're, you're emoting and sitting in there empathetically with the character to build out that structure before sharing it. Definitely. And of course, one of the things that we enjoy about your podcast as well is you do add humor. And there is moments where you would think in these dark stories, humor might not work. Right. How do you go about adding humor to these stories? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I kind of, part of the way I grew up was like, you find something funny in the weirdest situation, right? It's just part of the gig. So, and in some ways, like the uglier it gets, the more there's that powerful weapon that is gallows humor that come in that is like, I mean, otherwise, again, you should, the alternative is you shoot yourself because it's so nasty and ugly, <laughs> or you find a way to laugh about it and keep going despite it all. And so to me, finding something funny in like situations that are clearly not funny and they are ugly and heavy is super important. And I deeply admire people who are able to do that. And again, it can be forced. It can't be, hey, I know that being, finding humor in tragedy is great. So let's, you know, because you feel it when it's right. forced. You need to come from who you are, really. And just your attitude of like, yeah, here we are. So let's let's find a way to go through this. With, uh, with the deal with some of your sponsors and Luminary, you, I remember when you had guaranteed a certain amount of shows and certainly knowing that the workload that you have with everything else that you're doing and yeah. teaching and martial arts and the other podcasts and, and what it takes to put together the research for one of these stories. I, I'm sure at times you feel run down or just beat up or uh, just uninspired because you've put so much 
out there. How do you deal with those with those times? I mean, there's yes, sure. And there's definitely the clock ticking. And you're <laughs> like, okay, this is great, but you need to get another story next month. So hurry up a little. You know, ultimately I enjoy telling these stories. I find, I enjoy studying them. I enjoy telling them. So it uh, while the workload is definitely intense, it's a topic that I'm super passionate about. So it helps. With all the prep that goes on and and you delving deeply into the story, is there something you look for when you now feel ready to hit record and and share it with an audience? How do you work through that? And I know a lot of our audience thinks about stories and it's like, well, that's not ready or I don't have this sure. component or I don't have the humor. How do you know when it's ready to share? To me, there has to be like the number one requirement is epic. You know, if I have even one moment in a story where I'm like, man, that's such a powerful moment. That's such a great line. That's uh, Then I'm like, okay, okay, we can work with this. <laughs> we can work because if uh, I'm sure if I find that one, there are going to be other moments in the story that are powerful. And so if I get that moment where I'm like, I can't wait to, like my daughter always, she's 10 years old now. She's always asking me to tell her stories, right? And so it's like, if I get to tell a five minute story to my daughter, that's short enough to keep attention span going, but powerful enough to get her super interest, then I have something that I can develop in something larger, right? So uh, there are these little snippets that, you know, you test them out. Can you keep the attention of a child and keep them at the edge of their seat? Okay, you can, boom, you got a story. Then you can develop it and add to it, you know? And obviously, how has this parlayed into your sharing your own stories and your own history of being a student of history and now having this podcast where you share these historical stories, how is that translated into your personal storytelling? You know, there are all the times in life when you're dealing with heavy stuff, when you're struggling, when you feel run down and and having in the back of your mind some stories that you focus on to give you that energy for that extra step, give you that energy for, okay, but I'm not totally crushed by this yet. It goes a long way because uh, it's very much kind of Joseph Campbell, the hero's journey mm. kind of thing. You know? Yeah, it's we talked about that is. in the toolbox and we all can resonate with those stories when we see them elsewhere. It's now seeing our own life through sure. that same pattern and being able to share it. I think there's a process where almost everything you touch has a little bit of autobiographical element because whatever story you tell is ultimately told through your process, framed by your experiences, Mm -hmm. the lenses you have developed to look at reality through your whole life story. So if you're talking about some Italian painter from the 1500s or some Lakota leader or some ultimately still filter through you and your experiences. So a little bit of that is going to color any story you tell. I think that's so wonderful when you get to hear a story that meant so much to you as a child, Mm -hmm. hear it as an adult with a completely different lens. And that story still carrying the same power, but means something completely different to you. Big time. Big time. And and that's the evolution, right? It's like when you, you're looking at something from this angle and suddenly you realize that there are many, many other angles to tackle the same topic from. And of course, these stories that we share, they become memories for others. And, mm-hmm. and that is our own history being shared and passed on. So the more compelling and engaging the story, the more the other person can relate to the story, well, that is a story that will be shared more and, yep. and ultimately make you stand out and become more memorable. That's that's the game, right? That's how you're playing the whole. Yep. 
Now, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but we know that because of exactly that, we're, we're perceiving the world in a certain light. And no matter if we're sharing a story about ourselves or we're sharing a story about a historical figure, our perception and perspective is going to be woven into that story. How do you tell or what is your barometer to judge if a story has been spun too much and maybe fake history mm. and and they've colored the lens of this sure. to be something that's just unrealistic? And how do you get to what you believe is the truth in these stories? I mean, so of course, is you need to have enough reliable sources. And that's not always easy because there are a bunch of stories for which there are no reliable sources. And then you're like, okay, this is the legend. This is based on what we know about the context, what we can assume, make educated guesses, but ultimately it's legend. Then there are the ones that are, you know, part legend, part, there's something that all the sources agree on. Okay, we're good there. But then there's plenty of room for things that's reported in the, by this one guy 50 years later. Maybe not, you know. And you tell it that way. You know, you say, hey, this is how the narrative goes flowing. But part of that flow may not be real. You know, we know this and we know this. And then somebody argued that this is what happened in between. Maybe it did happen. Uh, this is what we have as evidence that it may have happened. But you know, make your own mind about it. And so you can either enjoy it as purely storytelling or you can assume that it's actual history and, you know, it's anybody's uh, work to figure it out. AOC, The Art of Charm, one of the things that we, we have a philosophical core and that philosophical core is what is the value that you're bringing to your interactions and to the world around you, which uh, pretty much flows really nicely with Taoism. Um, and so... When it comes to storytelling and it comes to living in that tradition of bringing value to others around you in a day, uh, anything that you could speak of and through that, that point. Yeah, I think one of the things that interested me about uh, Taoism is that unlike most any philosophy or religion that you need to believe certain things to be that thing, you can be 100% Taoist in worldview without ever having read a damn thing about Taoism or know even what Taoism is. Mm -hmm. Because to me, what interests me about Taoism is that it very much speaks the language of life. It's kind of like somebody who sits at the window and describes the way the universe works. It's not even to argue it. It's not uh, something you need to believe or disbelieve. It's like, look out the window and that's exactly how reality works, right? So I find it refreshing because it's... Um, even though it doesn't feel like that, because, you know, you read the Tao Te Ching and depending on the translation, it can get really complex and it's not for everybody to get into. Once you break down the basic principles, they are everywhere in anything. You know, it's sort of that uh, if you become a master at anything, you are going to be applying those principles in your life. And whether you know it or not, they are the exact same thing. So you can derive the same insight from completely different fields. To, uh, to and, and really they help you navigate life easier. And what are those principles that you live by? Uh, for example, there's um, like the first line of the Tao Te Ching is funny because sometimes it's translated as uh, the Tao that can be explained is not the real thing. It's not the eternal Tao. And it's like, well, that should also be the last line of the book, right? Because then if you can't do it, then why are we wasting time? And he's telling you, look, words are great because that's how we communicate as human beings, but they are a limited tool. They are verbal symbols that you're trying to get, describe reality with. They are not the same thing as reality. And so much 
miscommunication takes place all the time between people. So many arguments are based on symbolic semantics rather than reality. So he's always telling you kind of like, okay, we're going to be using this. But remember, language and the real thing are two different things. So that's something that's always helpful. But on a much deeper level, when you ask about principles, like even something like the yin-yang symbol, you know, it's telling you, like whoever designed it way back thousands of years ago was a damn genius because it's so perfect in its simplicity, right? So much of the view of duality that exists in the world is like there's a clear-cut line between one side and the other and one is good and the other is evil and they are fighting each other across this rigid line and it's based on conflict. That is me telling you everything is made of opposite energies. Male, female, cold and hot, uh, sun and dark, you know, everything is made. And there's always a balance between those two things. If you are able to find the right balance in the right situation, boom, everything is going to be easier. If you don't find the right balance in the right situation, your life is going to be harder. Simple as that. In a way, it's like a philosophical kind of surfing. Everybody gets it that you need to be in balance on the board on top of a wave. The skill is in reading the ocean, reading everything around you so that, because balance doesn't mean you're always in the middle either. That's not balance. That's being dogmatic in a different way, not in a completely black or completely white, but is I'm going to be dogmatic in the middle. It's like, that's, it would be nice if life was that simple. It's not. You know, one of the key things of Taoism is everything is constantly changing. So your skill, your ability is to learn the right balance in each situation that's constantly changing as well. And in some cases, balance may not look like balance. In some cases, you are tilted 95% <laughs> one way, but it's exactly what's needed at the moment. Two seconds later, the balance has shifted. And so you need to tilt it back real fast. And in that sense, is uh, that's why I find surfing a powerful metaphor for what Taoism is about because it's essentially teaching you how to navigate life. And of course, it's not a, it's not a hey, here are seven easy steps to become a perfect uh, life surfer. It's like learning how to cook. It's like learning anything that's, a, that's an art to some degrees. You have principles, you learn those, but ultimately some people are going to have a genius for it. It's like your grandma who's an amazing chef and goes, no, not ready, not ready, now. And they make the call in that right moment and, and that tastes 10 times better than a minute later or a minute earlier. That to me is something that fascinates me about Taoism because it's built on uh, being completely not dogmatic in nature. It's telling you that's how life works, but a lot of it experimentation and a lot of it is uh, contextual. Yeah, that acceptance Mm-hmm. for what is happening mm-hmm. and that flexibility to adjust to what's happening. Flexibility is key. I mean, think about, uh, and again, you, to give an example of how you can apply to everything, let's say you have kids, right? You think I need to give structure to my kids. They need to have discipline. They need to do this. For some kids, that's perfect. That's exactly what mm-hmm. they need. But you apply that model, which is good with kid A to kid B, and they are pissed off and they hate you. And your ability is to be able to read the situation and go, that's not what this guy needs. With him, we're going to do something a little different. There still will be some of the discipline, but a lot will tone that down a lot because what they need instead is more kind of giving them responsibility, letting them make choices, be a little more free. 
And it's not that one model is good or bad. Is one model is perfect for one kid, one model is perfect for another. If you apply a good model in the wrong situation, you still screw things up. Um, and I think, obviously, with the study of history, this idea of humility and being humble. Mm-hmm. You know, even when we think about our heroes and the legends and the stories that you've investigated, they're all flawed. Everyone is flawed. Even the people we look up to and elevate are flawed. So we need to look at our own flaws in the same way mm-hmm. and be humble and have some humility. On one end, and at the same time, being kind of being kind to yourself. It's like it's great to have high expectations. But hey, man, we understand everybody screws up, you know, ease up on yourself a little. And even that, speaking of Taoism, is a temperature, right? Some people are way too quick in making excuses for themselves. Well, then let's cut down on the excuses and get your act together a little more. Some people are way too hard on themselves. And so it's like, I appreciate this drive for self-perfection, but tune it down three notches because you're driving yourself crazy. And so even that is this kind of balancing act. That you right. Know. It's not one or the other. It's nope. not an either or. Yep. You know, I, as we get older, we, we, we slowly start to put that balancing act for ourselves. And, and still at times it can be difficult. Mm-hmm. You know, but, but some of the characters that you've covered, their balancing act certainly looks a lot different than probably any of ours. A Diogenes being one of them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, right. and there was a few other characters that you had put together. And I love the comparison that you made of him of, to Gigi Allen, which right. I, I died. Um, I would been, and I'd been waiting for somebody to put, I had thought was, I was the only one that had made that connection. Right. But when you, when you look at those people and, and I, I like Bukowski seems to be one of those characters as well, who cannot live can very conventionally, but yet you're getting something and an intelligence and a, and a, and a, and a angle that, that only they can bring to a situation to, to, to give you a, a better view of it, that, that no one who lives a straight life or a well-balanced act can, and can put together. Yeah, sometimes there's power in being off-balance. <laughs> <laughs> there's something to be get, that you can get from that as well. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, guys. Uh, Thank obviously, you. We've, we've mentioned your podcast a yes. bit here, but where can our audience find you and all this phenomenal work? So all the... Um, I think the first 47 episodes of History on Fire are all freely available on iTunes and all most of the other things. Most of the new ones are just exclusive to Luminary. But if you haven't checked the podcast before, you have a long way to catch up to. So (laughs) there are many, but all the new ones are on uh, Luminary Premium. So that's the way to go. And uh, other than that, I'm sure, you know, everybody knows how to use Google. It's easy (laughs) enough once you spell the name correctly to find all the relevant links. Thank you for joining us. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much. So here's our challenge for you this week. And we're going to continue with the exercise that we did in the Toolbox episode earlier this month. Now, don't worry, Johnny walked you through the eight steps of a great story. If you need a refresher, just listen to the last eight minutes of that show. And of course, if you haven't listened to it at all, then it's about time. Back to this week's challenge. Go back to that short story you wrote earlier this month and set it on fire, as Daniele would say. Daniele shared a lot of insights today. How to handle the dark parts of a story how to add some in-depth research where needed, and of course, how to add some humor and develop out those emotions. 
Now, you might think that's a lot of work. And yes, it could be the case, but here's the thing. If this is your hero story, then you'll want it to be on fire. You'll tell this story again and again when you're meeting new people, and you want to make sure it's as captivating as it possibly can be. Listen, we'd love to know how this went for you. We're always excited to hear from you. You can send us your thoughts by going to theartofcharm.com slash questions. You can also email us questions for our upcoming episode on storytelling, questions at theartofcharm.com, or find us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Art of Charm. AJ, just before we end this, I want to give an Art of Charm boot camp alumni shout out to Ben, who is now the mayor of his town. I know when he came through the boot camp a few years ago, he was just getting started in his political career, really interested in being more active in politics. And it's so exciting to see him take those AOC skills to the next level to become mayor, uh, a very young mayor at that. Yes. Now, of course, I really enjoyed this show. I thought, one, when we think about the stories that we share and think about the history that we can pass on from generations, there's no better storyteller out there than Daniele. And I was so excited to hear from him how he goes about structuring his stories, painting that emotional picture, and of course, finding the payoff. And there's no mistake in or, or taking storytelling for granted with him. It's every aspect of his life. And as we talked about in the Toolbox episode, it's in every aspect of all of our lives. Exactly that. Being able to tell a more compelling and interesting story, whether it's someone else's or your own, is a valuable skill set in every area of life. If you're new to the show, but you want to know more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, listen to our toolbox episodes at theartofcharm.com slash toolbox. That's where you'll get the fundamentals of networking, persuasion, and influence, such as body language, eye contact, and many other topics. We've got boot camps running every single month here in sunny California. Details on those are at theartofcharm.com. And if you're loving the challenges we give you every week, then you got to sign up for our free challenge. You can head on over to theartofcharm.com slash challenge. It's 10 days of social skills challenges and a great group online community of show fans who are all working on improving their social skills. It's free, it's unisex, and it's a great way to get the ball rolling. Get some forward momentum, and we'll also send you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier in this show, which includes great practical stuff ready to apply right away. This will make you a better connector, a better networker, and of course, a better thinker. That's at theartofcharm.com slash challenge. Also, could you do us and the entire Art of Charm team a big favor? Could you go on over to iTunes and rate this podcast? It would really mean the world to us and help others find the show. The Art of Charm podcast is produced by Michael Harold and Eric Montgomery and engineered by Sam Jay and Bradley Denham at Cast Media Studios here in sunny downtown Hollywood. I'm AJ. And I'm Johnny, and we'll see you next week. 